0: So today, I'm happy to welcome in Steve Groff again, the Cover Crop Coach, and uh, today we're going to be diving into the very timely topic of planting green. Uh, As we were talking before uh, the start of the webinar, uh, it's been a very interesting spring in, in many parts of the country and um, I think some of those flashes of spring weather have probably got guys thinking about planting uh, maybe a little bit sooner than they, than they normally would have the chance to think about it. So, uh, Steve, why don't you take it away and share some of your insights on uh, planting into a green cover crop.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, Conrad. I'm um, just delighted to be with you all again and to share today uh, this whole it's uh, certainly been um, a topic of interest within the cover crop circles. It's somewhat controversial, uh, and, and I just want to get that right out there. It is for people who really want to embrace cover crop management or another level of management. And I'm going to share today some of the uh, challenges that come along with it, some of the things to watch out for. Uh, but also there is a certain amount of benefits that's certainly attracting people and in, in be able to plant green. So I have uh, been doing this for a while, which I'll, I'll get to, but I've been doing some research with Penn State University in, with, uh, with some support from the USDA SARE program the last two years to try to get some numbers, try to get some data to planting green. A little bit of history here in the past several years, I think is for at least there was a significant amount of observational interest from some Pennsylvania farmers who have been using cover crops for a while. They started noticing a little less slug damage when we planted into a green cover crop. That uh, piqued the interest of uh, John Tooker from Penn State University. He came on, I don't know, about eight or ten years ago, and he has been doing some research on it. So we this kind of started from some anecdotal evidence that we saw was for some slug control, which is a challenge, and when we're talking no-till and cover crops. So that was kind of the premise of some of the research that is going on right now, which I'm gonna share with you. But a little bit of history, for me personally. This is on my farm in 1984. I started no-tilling in 1982, and we, um, I started to plant into, as you can see here, about an 18, 22-inch cereal rye that was growing. So I have been doing some sort of planting green over you know more than 30 years and uh, certainly now I am pretty much committed to the the land I farm which is um, about 250 acres is I will tend to plant green uh, as often as I can. Now that being said, and I'm going to go through some of the challenges and some of, of different things that go along with all this, uh, it's something that I have found to be beneficial on my farm. But I really want to be absolutely clear in starting this presentation that I'm going to share you with you some of my personal insights on what I have found on my farm. I'm going to share with you a few other people's. Uh, farmers' uh, insights and perspectives, but the whole thing of planting green, uh, just like so many other aspects of cover crops, is you're going to have to make it work on your farm. You're going to have to figure out what works, and there's a lot of moving pieces to make the planting green concept work, and it's just something that um, I hope that we can pique interest today and educate ourselves to be able to do a good job of it. Again, just for context here, uh, we're all probably familiar with these, uh, like the four R's generally associated with uh, nutrient placement, but I kind of edited them a little bit for cover cropping. Um, And this, again, sets the stage for planting green. What is the goal? What, What are you trying to do by planting green? You really need to understand, you need to identify that and it's something we've, we went over uh, last week when we talked about making cover crops pay, it's very important that you identify the goal and what you're trying to accomplish. And then the right time, uh, this is mainly associated with, uh, with the planting and, you know, when is your planting window, the right mix, if we're going to grow mixes. What would that be? And then the right termination. In this topic of planting green, we're gonna spend some time on termination because that's where kind of compromise may need to happen. There's a certain time where you do need to get your cash crop planted, but how long do you leave your cover crop grow? There's several factors involved in that. So just a list of some of the benefits. They're fairly obvious. Uh, if we have legumes, we're looking for maximum nitrogen production. Hairy vetch, crimson clover, and a whole host of legumes that we may be able to plant. If we can leave them grow till at least first bloom or late bud stage, we've maximized them. Uh, if we can do that, we're maximizing nitrogen production from our legumes. And then biomass production. If that's a goal, we're trying to grow biomass simply to improve the health of our soils or to keep the soils covered, that lends itself planting green because we're allowing our cover crops to grow longer. The other thing that is kind of a whole new world is encouraging beneficial insects. And this is in the context of conventional agriculture where we're kind of used to killing everything that we don't like, that's kind of been our way we've operated in agriculture in the last uh, several decades. But can we encourage beneficial insects that may help control or put into balance insects that are that are currently pests? Can we can we do this by leaving a cover crop grow? We know there's a relationship of encouraging some beneficial insects, and yes. It could be some other insects we can encourage that we don't want as well. I, I certainly am well aware of that. But uh, in the context of trying to look at this very objectively, uh, I'm thinking here some of the benefits of using beneficial insects. And it's like we're building a zoo for them. Um, another benefit is to dry out the soil. And I'm well aware that uh, I see Andy's on here from Alberta. He probably is like shuddering when I say that but uh, because he's in a dry climate. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But there are many acres that is simply wet in the spring. They tend to be wet. So we're going to use cover crops to help dry out the soil. And weed control is another thing. It's Probably not the top reason why people plant green, but it's one thing, and then as I indicated earlier, less slug damage, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into that, dive into that a little bit. Some of the challenges associated with planting green is, dries out the soil. So the exact same thing, it's a benefit in one area, can be detrimental in another area, or in any given year. And we're gonna talk about this a little bit too, about how you manage, how do you manage the, uh, the best of both worlds, so to speak, and what you're trying to accomplish. And a big thing in planting green does involve proper equipment. Um, kind of falls into two main categories. Are you going to spray, are you going to roll, are you, or is your planter set up to handle high residue, tall residue, thick residue, can you close the slot? Can you close the seed slot, uh, especially when you have a living root mass that is just you know difficult to close if you don't have the right type of closing wheels and so forth. So, and another problem that has come up is uh, radiators being plugged up on tractors because you're driving through uh, pollinating uh, crops like cereal rye. So that is indeed has been uh, a challenge that we that we've had to face. No matter how many mistakes you make or how slow your progress, you are still way ahead of everybody who isn't trying. And I want to give that perspective just on the outset here. Planting green is not for the faint at heart. It's not for someone who hasn't done their research, uh, talked to other people who have done it. And I would encourage you to start small. I say that almost every cover crop I talk that I give. Uh, And this is one area where uh, it does take some finesse, it takes some risk, uh, but then there's some rewards as well. So just a little bit of perspective to have. So um, this is actually a picture of Ben Peckman planting his corn into a nice stand of cereal rye. And he is doing this to dry his soil out. That's one of his main motivations here to do this, because typically it's his lower ground, and uh, so that's his uh, motivation for doing this. He made a comment once; I wrote it down. He said, "Yeah, I got to get off once in a while and make sure there's rare units. You're still back there." Uh, so, and again, it's just kind of funny, but yet there is kind of a reality of it because you know you're, you're so tall; it's just you're just not used to this kind of thing if you haven't done it before. So. Um, again, for him, that's his reason for doing this, and, and it kind of um, leads right into equipment manufacturers have now seen and responded to planting green and some of the needs that are out there. Uh, these rollers, here's the Dawn Biologic rollers that are, on, that are made now to be put on planters. I'm going to show you my roller later on. There are different kinds out there. Um, different sizes and shapes and to to roll down cover crops. So you don't have to roll down a cover crop, but if it's more than two and a half feet, generally that's the threshold that you want to think about rolling it down so it doesn't shade the emerging crop. Um, So the equipment companies have responded, uh, but I gotta tell you, this has mostly been started from farmer innovation. And even these rollers here were started, uh, developed by Charlie Martin here in Pennsylvania to do this. And um, the cover crop rollers were started by farmers. Uh, I started rolling back in 1995 and I learned it from the Brazilians. So uh, that's kind of a little brief history on on cover crops and rolling and planting green. Well, you don't have to plant into six feet tall cereal rye, um, there is uh, you know, cover crops sometimes in the spring, depending on you want to plant, may only be six inches tall, depends what area of the country you're in, and it's generally easier from an equipment standpoint to plant into smaller covers, and I would recommend you probably start out on a smaller size, just because it's, uh, it's easier to deal with. So uh, this happens to be going into some annual ryegrass. Uh, a pretty ideal time to do that. Um, there's a lot of factors go into uh, thinking of timing and so forth. Of course, we do have the calendar, we have the weather conditions and all that. But um, when, we, when we're considering going in, into planting green, you kind of have to evaluate what your comfort level is in doing this?" And I've alluded to that, but um, that, is a, that is definitely a big factor. Then the stage of growth of your cover crop, uh, and I've alluded to the soil moisture. Is it dry? Is it getting dry? Is it wet? And then also, when we talk about controlling, a harder-to-control species such as annual ryegrass, we need to make spray water first and we need to understand how that's done. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time today on the specifics of controlling with uh, with herbicides. Um, that topic will undoubtedly come up uh, some other time, and um, if there is some questions about it, uh, we can we can talk about. It. I will say very briefly for annual ryegrass, you generally want to just use glyphosate by itself. You want to spray about when the first joint comes out. That is the easiest time to kill it, so you need to be looking at it. You want to try to spray in the middle part of the day between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. You want the temperature to be above 50 if possible. Um, You want to keep your spray water down to 4.5, 5.5 pH. Those are some of the things that help to, to control um, annual ryegrass. You follow those instructions and you'll be good. Uh, one other thing is keep your spray uh, total application rate of the, the carrier water between 8 and 12 gallon per acre. So I just listed a few things really quickly for specifically for annual ryegrass. Um, I am going to talk about some other ones here uh, coming up, but I do want to share with you uh, some of that research that I alluded to at the beginning that I am involved with, with Penn State University, and uh, my farm is one of several that we're, we're looking at. And, and I'll just tell you up front, uh, there is not a clear um, statement yet on, on um, I guess, I'll just say there's not a clear definitive statement that planting green produces higher yields because we've seen yields higher and we've seen yields lower. Um, So I'll just tell you that right up front. Um, I think there's more to this whole concept of cover crops um, in the context of our agriculture cropping systems. We need to look at the whole deal. We need to look at uh, profitability at the end of the year and so forth. So um, just uh, looking at some of the theories we had of increasing beneficial insects, and sure enough, that we could see. And if you look at the, the graph up there in the upper right-hand corner, we saw more predators. These are the good guys. Uh, and where we sprayed out late, where we left it green, the green line up there we saw is higher. We saw more of those. So that that we have identified. Uh, so we know that that's kind of part of the theory that has been verified, I guess you would, I guess you could say. Uh, I put this slide up here to show you the corn population. This was uh, after planting, corn populations were taken. And I want to make a point from this. When you see the four different locations, the first two, the population of corn was uh, pretty much as planted or in both the different where it was sprayed earlier, which is essentially easier to plant into it was sprayed out earlier. So the brown or tan bars are what was sprayed earlier, and the green is what was waited to be terminated until either just just before planting or just after planting. Uh, the other two on the right, at, uh, the ones say Landisville and Rock Springs, they had some planter issues there. And I want to point this out because we're going to talk about planting, and part of the problem here was getting the seed in the ground and also closing the seed slot. That did result in lower population. Now, what is interesting is this was realized and understood. For 2016, came back, and those two planters were fixed. And then we got our plant populations where they should be. So I I make this point uh, because a lot of cover crop research that is being done Sometimes you need to dig into the details. If it didn't work, why didn't it work? Was there a specific reason it didn't work? This is something that was, that's coming out of this study that Penn State's doing is you need to have a planter that can handle the, the tougher or the, uh, the, the root mass. Being able to close that slot is very important. So uh, again, these are things we're learning through research. So another thing we wanted to test is, uh, well, what about this perception that farmers are seeing of less slug damage? Um, well, let's look at soybeans here, and this year, sure enough, very consistently, except that um, the one farm there, we had significantly less slugs where we planted green. That's what we've been seeing, that's what we expected. but. Going over to our corn plots, the opposite was true in three out of four places. And you can even see there on my field, uh, on the left, I had a lot more slugs when I planted the corn, uh, into planting in the green cover crop. So this year, this is what was showed. I don't have last year's data because it was flat. It was dry last year, last spring, and it was the same everywhere. Um, so. Soybeans, less slugs. Corn, more slugs. And in my field, the fields were only, um, well, about a couple hundred yards apart. Now, is this simply because of background where they, these fields tended to have more slugs? These are the questions we're asking. But wanted to show you all the data, and uh, so that's this, this research has gone on again this year. Another reason for doing three years of research, we'll see which way the scales tip maybe this year. Um, just a little bit of a, a picture there of uh, my field. Uh, one thing I want to show you is we started getting dry the end of May, beginning of June. This picture was taken in the, about the second week of June. And if you look on the right-hand side, you can see some narrow narrow strips there that are about six corners wide. That's where we left the cover crop grow would have to grow longer. It took more moisture out of the soil, hence it's drier. The reason it's grayer is because that corn is starting to show some drought signs. And um, this, is, this is sometimes the soil was dried out too much in this case. So um, I'm just showing you you know, what can happen in some, um, in some scenarios. And even when the corn pollinated, I took this picture where it is behind where it was planted green, the corn was delayed almost a week because of that early on dry period that we, would, that we went through. And, and sure enough, at my place, I did show a yield deficit where I planted green this year. Um, other places here showed either a slight benefit or a significant benefit or no difference. Um, so, what do you do with data like this? Well, we do it again next year. So, we shall see. Um, I, I just, to, to me, the, the key take home, take home here is everything. There's a certain amount of risk. Um, I have certainly been very comfortable planting green, but this moisture factor is kind of a wild card and you need to manage it. Now, when we grow our spring cover crops, and it's dry, and there's no rain in sight, and it's the middle of April, you want to be thinking about terminating it. That's just pretty much what you have to do unless you're willing to take the risk of maybe, maybe there is um, forecast to be significant rain, you never know. So this is where where you as a farmer need to decide what do you do in a case like this. Um, I will say this, that if it is on the wet side, you wanna make sure you can plant everything that you spray, that you terminate. So that means either plant, then spray later, or only terminate what you, for sure, you can get planted because if you spray it and don't plant, and then it stays dry, or excuse me, stays wet, you just won't be back in that field for a long time because now you've just created a a mat that's gonna keep the moisture in there which is a good thing if you have your cash crop planted. So again, something to keep in mind here in managing it. This is a top-level managed practice, so you need to understand that um, as, as going into it. I mentioned before legumes. We like to grow legumes uh, for the diversity, uh, for producing some uh, nitrogen, letting them grow longer. Um, and you don't, if you don't have a roller, or that's too cumbersome, or you just you can you can spray them out. Legume like a crimson clover doesn't get that tall, that factor will run down, run things down pretty good. Um, but uh, what I understand, cover crops, legume cover crops, is around the first flower or so is when maximum nitrogen is achieved. So if you're going in and spraying it out. Just using glyphosate on a crimson clover may not take it out. Um, Matter of fact, I would really recommend you put a pint of 2,4-D in there to be able to terminate it. And we need to mention uh, hairy vetch, uh, my favorite cover crop. I've been working with it for over 20 years now. Um, Pretty much the same thing there. You need to add some 2,4-D to control it. And this is a good one to roll. It's uh, fairly easy to control with the roller, and we're going to be talking about that coming up. So, I mentioned equipment and getting your equipment ready. Um, I just uh, I put this picture in here because it's at night, and uh, the reason I put it in here is that when you have a good planter that's set up to plant green and to manage that existing biomass. And you're comfortable planning at night. Um, you know sometimes you need to because the weather coming, or you just need to get the job done. You know that's a, that's a wonderful feeling I feel to have the confidence to be able to do this. That's the point of this picture. Now the planner that that you can have the confidence that you're getting the seed in the ground and you're getting it properly done. Now a little thing, kind of as an aside here, if you're ever planning into a green cover crop at night and you're not used to it, remember I talked about the beneficial insects and everything that are in that cover? Well, I'm here to tell you there's a lot of insects out there. And I, um, I uh, just put this picture up here to show you, I took this picture of the bugs that are surrounding the lights. <laughs> And I just want to make a point that you're never going to see this on, on a, like a tilled, clean field. Now, um, I don't know which one of those bugs are good or bad, but there's a lot of bugs out there. And what I've found is you don't leave the door open very long in the cab at night, or you will be joined in the cab with hundreds of bugs, and that is a pain. So if you guys ever plant at night in planting green, just want to save you the bother of, of uh I just want to make you aware that it can get real buggy in there if you you got to keep them bugs out of the cab. On a more serious note, uh, sometimes you'll have, um, and this is in a situation where we're not rolling down the cover, especially if you're planting into something like a hairy vetch that may be mixed with a tritter kale or cereal rye, you, there, there could be parts of the plant that you'll have crop residue, crop bi- biomass that's hanging up on it, and that can be a problem. It can add up. So what I had to do in the situation is I just simply got some ropes there and put them out and that was able to help bend over, in this case it was a mix of triticale and and, um, hairy vetch and so forth, so that eliminated the problem. So this is kind of a simple fix. Sometimes they're not this easy, but just a little kind of an FYI there that you, you have to be kind of patient with this there could be some unexpected things you'll have to figure out. Um, and that's what we're trying to trying to help uh, do here. Another thing is, in using row cleaners, particularly early on in the season, you may want to have them cleaning off a part of the row just to warm up the soil a little bit. Um, there are lots of row cleaners on the market. I have found these Yetter shark tooth with the treader wheel. I think the treader wheel actually helps to be virtually unwrappable. Um, I, have, I have never wrapped these up where I've had to stop the planter, get off, and clean them out. That being said, you know, I'm planting, I, I do, you know, a field or two, I may go back and pull a few sprigs off here and there, but I, I really like this design, the way it's designed everything. So, again, if you're going to be seriously getting into plant, going to planting green, you need to consider um, what kind of row cleaners you're going to use and then how aggressive you're going to use them. Um, Just to show you here where uh, this is last year we were pretty cold and damp during the month of May. And um, in this case here, this is about the middle of May and usually we're done planting corn by then here but because of the cool, wet weather, we weren't, and it was, the soil temperature was borderline, and I had my row cleaners set down, and for me, this is set down. You'll understand later why I say that, but just to scrape away a little cover crop, because I I wanted that soil to warm up to get the crop out of the ground. So, uh, adjusting the row cleaners um, is something that you're gonna have to do based on conditions and that depends on the soil temperature and expected temperature coming up, how much you wanna clear off that row, uh, and how deep you're planting the seed. There's a lot of factors go into this, I'm gonna explain some of them coming through here, that almost every field or every week, maybe you need to change the aggressiveness of your row cleaners depending, uh, a lot of it is on the temperature, because as the temperature warms up, you can plant a little deeper, that gets a little better of a cut, down through, less hairpinning, a lot of variables go into setting a planter up properly as the season progresses. And um, some years it may be pretty much the same the whole time, other years it may be uh, significantly different. But let's go to the back of the planter and uh, I have listed here using spoked closing wheels Pretty much without exception, I think some type of spoke closing wheels is is good uh, because of the root thatch that we have to close and planting green. Smooth wheels just don't tend to do the job as good and they tend to, if it's a little wet, they tend to like ribbon the soil which can actually come apart. Um, But there's a lot of spoke wheels in the market. and, and you know different options out there. Uh, these are Pro stitch what I'm using. And if you look kind of close to this picture you can see how it kind of stitches the row shut. The wheels kind of align themselves to be offset to each other very quickly after you're engaged in the ground and it actually kind of has a, a stitching type action there that kind of like pokes the row closed. And we don't need a lot of pressure when we're doing this with these type of closing wheels. Um, so again, paying a, you need to pay a, a significant amount of attention to make sure that row is closing. This is a typical problem. This is one of the weakest points of planting green. And you need to have, um, you need to get that row closed So whatever you need, whatever you have to do, you gotta do it, you gotta get that row closed. And you really need to get back and get out of the tractor, get down on your hands and knees and dig and see where the seed's at and is that row closing because if it happens to get dry, that row can literally open up. And that's not good, it allows slugs in, can dry out and then a whole host of problems there. So um, one of the things that I have found out that's very helpful in uh, looking for seeds in a high uh, uh, a solid root mass situation is use a trowel. Just having a normal uh, little uh, poker like to find the seeds, it's a little difficult to find them, but take a trowel and slice out go down to about seed depth and just run the trowel along the seed trench and you can see if there's hairpinning, you can see where the seeds are tucked in. And and this is just a little thing that I found out that's been very helpful. I'll, I'll dig four or five feet and look for maybe five to 10 seeds. I want to be assured that when I'm in the tractor, those seeds are in the ground going down through that residue. Uh, I'm concerned about hairpinning, I'm concerned about seed depth, I'm concerned about closing. So this is very important, that's why I carry a trowel when I'm planting green. Um, So that's kind of the planting end of it. I want to talk now a little bit more about planting into a tall cover crop. And here you can see a picture of my roller that I've been using now for um, 22 years and it is uh, kind of one of a kind, but it works for me when I use it. I, I, I do plant uh, corn, excuse me, I plant pumpkins that I use this every year on. This year, because of the wet spring, I used it more in corn and so, soybeans, and that's actually what I'm rolling down here in preparation for uh, corn. I didn't really set out to do it this year, but because of the wet weather we had, I let it grow, I let it dry out the soil. And let it gain biomass. I mean, you know, it's, it's just all good. So, um, but I got to tell you, there's been some challenges that we've experienced in uh, in going into pollinating rye. And in this case, uh, with your tractor, uh, it can clog up your radiator. So it, 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 it has been, uh, it was a concern this year here in Pennsylvania because there's quite a few guys doing this. And uh, trying to figure out how to, uh, it, it's, a, it's a real pain to have to get off and clean your radiator out every hour. But um, one of the, there's a, there's a couple things we've found here that, that is quite important, but you, you, when you're running this, you want to you wanna be checking your water temperature. Uh, I know it's a simple thing, but some people may not um, uh, think about it. I had a hired man a couple years ago. Uh, running a tractor for me, rolling down uh, cereal rye I was pollinating and, and I I guess I'm not sure if I told him or not, but well, he almost ruined the block of that tractor. I mean it it was it was just cooking. So um, just something that you need to be aware of. And um, it's amazing how that pollen can just get everywhere and get in the radiator and all the screens and and downtime is not good. These are, this is something you need to think about, something you need to prepare for. Um, there actually, um, there actually is some 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 remedies maybe for this. Depends how much uh, you're interested in investing, but there's reversible fans out there that they've been popular in construction industry and so forth. But uh, actually, there's some guys thinking about putting these fans in as a way to overcome this problem. So it only happens when the rye is pollinating, particularly cereal rye. Um, a little thing that you can you can kind of manage if you don't have a lot is to roll early in the morning when well, there's a little dew out there, if, if there is dew, and and that's just a, a technique that it kind of reduces some of the pollen. It stays to the rye seed heads a little bit better. Um, another thing that uh, I have noticed is that by using uh, triticale or triticale instead of cereal rye, there doesn't seem to be as much pollen on there on it. And um, it might be something, Andy, I know you're on this call out there, I think you might have been the one who told me that, that triticale doesn't pollinate as much as rye. So I'm a big fan of triticale myself, and this is another reason maybe to consider uh, triticale, so maybe at the end we can talk about that. Uh, another important thing, particularly when we're planting green and we're dealing with these tall cover crops, is to uh, understand some of the fertility dynamics. And in the context of cereal rye, um, there, it's very good at taking up moisture and available nitrogen. So I, I, I asked this question here, what is missing? And I asked it that way so you, hopefully you remember. Uh, in this case, nitrogen. Nitrogen for your corn crop. If you're gonna plant soybeans into this, it's awesome, ready to go. You're gonna plant corn into this. Assume there's zero nitrogen present. That's available. Nitrate nitrogen. Because the rye has pretty much taken it all up. And you need to be able to supply, for corn now, you need to be able to supply some nitrogen for that corn to get it off and growing. And I know a lot of times uh, yellow corn or lethargic corn is kind of blamed for the allelopathic that cereal rye may have, and I know that that could be true, but I think more times than not, it's just simply a lack of available nitrogen. Now, there is a lot of nitrogen in your soil, it's just not available at that moment. And so when you plant into, when you plant green into a predominantly grass-type cover crop with corn, you need to put the nitrogen in the furrow, I would suggest, as a starter, and very close to uh, the corn plant as it starts growing. You need more nitrogen up front. Now just to give you a comparison, if you're planting into a predominant, like a radish, um, that that releases its nitrogen early and you don't need nitrogen at planting per se, but you will later on. If we're planting a legume, there will be nitrogen there. So it's just important to understand this dynamic when you're letting that cover crop grow longer. Um, So there is a nutritional aspect here of management and how to do that. Uh, I had uh, mentioned before hairpinning and just here again, I take my trowel and I clean out the side of my planting trench. There's a couple things I'm noticing here. I'm having some hairpinning. A little of this is okay, but do you see that that corn seed is right next to a piece of probably cereal rye that's there, and it wasn't cut. That can wick out moisture. Um, it it's just it's just a concern. So how do we eliminate that? Well, you could make your row cleaners a little more aggressive. And that may be what you do when it's early on and the soil is cold. That's what I would suggest. However, once the soil becomes warmer, then we simply can plant deeper. We don't have to cover it up as much. We can set the planter to plant deeper. And in this case here that you see, you can tell that that seed has gone in pretty deep. You can see how deep the double discs are, and I'm not using the row cleaner because this was May the 29th. This was the last corn I planted last year. It's what I what you saw me rolling there, and it was getting warm, so I planted my corn about um, two and a half inches deep, and it really came up nice. Um, but one of the keys to be able to do this, also notice there's no colder there. Um, I don't. I have not ran colders for about eight years now. Uh, but in order to be able to do that, you wanna have good down pressure. And I just showed you there in the bottom left-hand corner, when you have air or hydraulic down pressure, boy, it's just like a whole new world in being able to plant. Uh, and so to get the seed down, to get the seed deep, um, is important when you have that opportunity. When the soil is getting warmer, you can do this. So, um, if, if uh, when you see the next picture here, I've set my planter much deeper, and now I am making a nice, clean slot that's going to be able to cut the cover crop better, less hairpinning, and um, and we'll be able to just do a much, much nicer job in getting that seed in the ground, down in the soil where it can be. And even though it's a lot deeper, it's gonna come up. And uh, it's gonna come up and grow well uh, because we're at the end of our season. If this is the beginning of the season, I would wanna set my row cleaners to be more aggressive. So I wanna make sure you understand that. Uh, Now here's another situation. This is in more of legumes. And legumes cut easier. In this case, it's mostly hairy vetch. You can see the pictures there. I don't really need a plant two and a half inches deep there because I'm doing a good job at cutting down through. And I don't need my row cleaners. I don't like that to use them unless there's a reason. And again, this is a little later in the season. So there again, this is the proper adjustments that you need to make uh, in order to maximize the opportunity of planting green. Now there's one caution that I really, really recommend that you be aware of. When you're planting into mature rye, as you see in this picture here, and you've got the plant across it, I don't know if there's hardly a planter made that's able to cut down through that very cleanly and do a good job. So this is why you need to roll it in the direction you're gonna plant it. You can plant kind of both ways, but it's easier in the direction you're planting it. Some people have rollers in front of their tractors, some people have them on their planters that we as we saw in the beginning, but just something that you cannot plant across ride right? it's down like that. It just won't work. Okay. Closing wheel wrapping. This is no good. This can be frustrating. And basically anytime you have a cover crop that grows more than three feet tall, this can occur with those spoked closing wheels that I like use in this situation. So uh, definitely can be very frustrating and not only that, you can actually burn out bearings uh, when this happens because it gets hot in there and it can just burn them out. But uh, thankfully there has been some devices made, some closing wheel scrapers that we can put on and here's just an example. There's, There's quite a few in the market now. This is another uh, product from Yetter that I think uh, to me it's the best one I have seen and have used that has helped that. So again, equipment companies are stepping up and some of these problems can be solved if we just get the right uh, equipment. So I want to kind of wrap things up here and talk about slugs a little bit. Uh, planning Green may make slugs more manageable. And I, I said may because I think the jury's still out. Um, But planting green also is is just part of it. Uh, With slugs, uh, I think diversifying our cash crop, we can add a small grain. I think that's going to be very helpful in in what we're trying to do here. Um, And then also if we can disrupt our cash crop sequence. I know that's difficult for a lot of guys to do, but something you might want to think about. Um, I have a list here of a seed cropping sequence that I use, uh, and I'll just go over it really quickly here, taking off wheat, or excuse me, planting wheat in mid-October, wheat comes off in early July, I go in with uh, sun hemp and sorghum sedan, early September I come right back in that field, roll it down, plant oil seed rape as a cash crop, uh, that comes off late June. Uh, We use double-crop, full-season soybean varieties at that time of the year to take advantage of any extra long fall that we get. We take them off in mid-November and plant cereal rye. And I have hairy vetch listed there as a question mark. And the reason I put it in there is I have developed a hairy vetch that's gonna be released here in a year or two to be able to be planted much later. And I'll just say I checked my vetch the other day and I'm in southeastern Pennsylvania. We did not have a harsh winter, uh, but all my veg plantings survived um, this past winter. And I planted every week up until December the 10th. So I think there might be something there. Um, but then I'll come back in mid-May and plant short season corn. That'll come off the middle of September, go back in with a nice three to uh, six way cover crop mix, and I'll plant pumpkins and squash and go back to wheat. Now. This is my rotation, and I know there's probably no one here that has one like this. Uh, But it's where I have intentionally tried to disrupt uh, a normal cash growing, cash crop sequence. And part of this I think helps in the reduction of slugs. And um, I have another sequence here, but for the sake of time, I'm just gonna buzz right on through it. Um, So I think for slugs, planting green may make them more manageable. That's what I'm kind of seeing. Uh, We can't say we've proved it yet, but uh, more and more growers are are seeing this. Uh, But trying to diversify our cash crops uh, and trying to disrupt our cropping sequence, plant cover crop mixes, this is something that I know the Europeans are saying helps with slugs and they have a lot of challenges with slugs. Also, another thing I'm gonna throw in here, and this this is probably going to, uh, I'll I'll just say it's in the maybe controversial category, but um, avoid seed treatments in the context of a healthy soil. Um, I've been doing this for a couple years, and I gotta admit, it's really weird to dump in yellow seed corn to plant. All my life, I've been used to planting pink, or blue, or green colored seed corn. But it seems to be working. We've done some side-by-sides. And I, uh, my comment right now is the healthy soils is I think the key to do this. And we're trying not to kill a carabid beetles which eat slugs. And most of the insecticide seed treatments, the, the big one is the, uh, the neonicotinoids uh, that they put on, will grow up in a corn plant the slug will eat the corn. It doesn't affect the slugs. The insecticide does not affect the slugs. But when a crabbed beetle' favorite food is a slug, when it eats a slug, it kills the very predators that kill our slugs. So we're, we think we're making some headway here. And, and I would venture to say, at least, this is where I'm at personally. I'm not telling anybody to go out and do this. Uh, I will say there's kind of a, there's a growing number of us that are moving in this direction. Um, but it's, it's just something I kind of put out there for you to think about considering maybe do. Um, I have slug bait that is getting dusty. Uh, I've had this for at least five years now. I haven't had to use it. Um, do I have slugs? Yes, I have slugs. But they've been manageable with the cropping system that I have. So the slug bait continues to be there. Will I use it if I have to? You bet. But I haven't had to. So I want to wrap up here with a little bit on weed control. Um, and then you can start some, having some questions if you want to. I see there's some coming in that Conrad can, can give to me. But um, This is that field I was rolling earlier. I want to plant corn in here. And um, that, that field really, really came around really nicely and I only needed to use one post-emergence application there of uh, a herbicide. No residuals. Uh, There was a little residual in one of the post-emergence, but so I saved some money by doing that. Had real nice silage yields come off that. And uh, this is my last picture, and and I think this is the full circle of planting green. because when you look at it, this was corn silage taken off. You can see this double there, but you still see the cereal rye that I left grow six feet tall, and now we have a new cover crop that was precision planted between those rows growing up in between there. So I love to plant my cover crop into my old cover crop residue. I don't want to see my soil. That's where I'm at um, in my goals for my farm. Not all of my fields look like this. So if you come and visit me, You will see some fields that you can see some soil, but I'm still working on trying to improve that where I can, but this is my ideal right here. This is where I'm at. I wanna have my soil covered at all times. I wanna have something growing in my field at all times. Planting green helps allow me to do that. And I would just say, kind of as an aside, I am saving some some fertilizer. I am saving some on weed control. And I feel like my soils are, are better than ever. So, Conrad, if there's any questions for me that uh, you want to share, and if there's anyone else who wants to unmute and, and ask, I'll let you. I'll, I'll throw it back to you.
0: Can you hear me, Steve?
1: Yeah, I can hear you now.
0: Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I'll go ahead and move everybody here on to uh, live mics. So, if you've mic, if you've muted yourself um, and you want to talk, you'll need to unmute yourself. But uh, everybody should be able to speak now if they want to. Um, Thank you, Steve, for that. That was excellent. Really, a lot of uh, things could come out of that, a lot of questions, you know, on uh, the effects of rolling down a pollinating cover crop to uh, the effect on slugs. So lots of of good things to consider. Um, Jerry, I know you had some questions about um, corn, the effect of different maturities of corn. Um, Are you able to pipe up here and ask that question live?
2: Yeah, the question that I had, Steve, is do you know if there's been any research of using like a longer maturity corn uh, planting green versus, say, a shorter maturity with uh, conventional tillage?
1: Is your question more to do with the validity of a shorter season corn? I guess I'm not quite sure what you're asking there, Jerry.
2: Well, you know, one thing that comes up as uh, quite frequently is, well, I, I can't plant my late season corn if mm. I go with crops. So if I were to do cover crops, I have to use a shorter maturity corn. And
1: my- no, Because we're planting later, we're planting let's say three or four weeks later because I want to let my cover cro- crop grow out. Can I plant a shorter season corn so that it matures in time before the frost kills it? Is that what you're asking?
2: Well, yes, to some degree, but also from a standpoint, can we say that, yeah, you can go in there, plant your longer maturity corn. You don't have to wait for your soils to dry down to do conventional tillage and (laughs) go with the maturity corn. Um, You know, there's been a lot of debate as far as... um, or a, a lot of people think that the the longer maturity corn automatically equals bigger yields. Mm-hmm. And the question I would have is can you get away with planting green keep your longer maturity corn and get those big yields versus a uh, happen to go to a shorter maturity if you felt can, you had to till it in or or
3: mm-hmm.
2: until you terminated your cover crop.
1: Well, I'll just, um, I'll break it down this way. I'll probably have a, a whole seminar, a whole webinar on using shorter season genetics as a strategy at some point because that is a popular topic. Um, one thing I know is the shorter season genetics of most all-cast crops have greatly improved uh, over the years. And so that definitely brings that into play as a strategic management uh, strategy in, in using cover crops. I think, um, and you're gonna have to help me if I'm answering your questions or not, uh, it was just interesting, I'll just give you a quick example. Last year, I never planted corn as late as May the 29th, at least in recent memory. I finished up corn, and I'm not a big corn grower by any means, but we had such a wet May that I, it was actually, I planted corn over a one-month period, that was another record I think I had here. I never had it planted such a long time. But my corn that was planted May the 29th actually yielded maybe some of the best corn I had. And that was just because of the way the weather came out. Um, and I, I look at things very, very, uh, I guess from the 30,000 foot level, so to speak, in this whole context of whole farm production. Um, and utilizing shorter season genetics, longer season genetics, uh, all kinds of cover cropping techniques, it becomes Uh, somewhat um, uh, complex in doing that, but each farm is going to have to figure out what indeed works for them because shorter season genetics, I have found, work better on soils that tend to dry out over the summer, like in the month of August. If you have well-drained soils that tend to dry out in August there is no reason not to plant short, short season genetics on a lot of your acres to get that crop mature off and out of there. You're just not gonna get the benefit from a longer season genetic. So a little wandering around there in my answer, but uh, I hope it helped.
2: Well, and one of the things that I hear frequently is like north of I-80 in say Iowa, Illinois type area, I'm often told that uh, they can't use legumes because the growth occurs so late in the season. And, you know, to me, the planting green, while it's a little bit uh, terrifying, could potentially alleviate some of that uh, concern and allow them to use it. Sure, even if they had to go to a shorter maturity corn, they might lose some yield, but would the nitrogen benefits potentially outyield the uh, the? the nitrogen savings out-yield the yield loss, I guess, would be the biggest.
1: I think that's a question that's going to have to be answered by those in, the, in those areas. And uh, I know there's some some progressive uh, farmers in Iowa um, who are, are working at, and, and I know uh, Lauren Steinage, I don't see him on the call, but he's in our group. Um, he's working at some of this planning green concept and so forth. So I think these are the things that will be kind of tested uh, in the next couple years to see, to, to, to answer that question.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Uh, I would just invite anybody else who has a comment um, and wants to give it live to, to hop on here. I know we have a pretty wide uh, geography represented today uh, with Dale and, and Andy. Um, you guys are, are working in very different areas. So um, if either of you would want to jump on and share uh, what is being experimented with in your area, that would be excellent insight. Um, but I'll throw the question to you, Steve, as well. Uh, what other areas of the country, what other geographies are experimenting with this planting green technique and having success.
1: Well, it's huh. I guess from what I've heard, um, it's it's there's there's probably probably more so in the East. Um, I just know that a lot of people are becoming interest, interested through through the Corn Belt now. Um, So, I know the concern is and the limiting factor in the west is where it starts getting drier and to me that is a valid concern to say you can never plant green in the typical dry areas I don't think is true. What I think is that spring that it happens to be wetter than normal, you want to be prepared to take advantage to plant green. That may only happen one in 10 years. I think that would be my comment to drier areas, this whole planting green concept. I would love to hear from Andy or any of anyone else, Dale, that has more experience in the dryland areas.
4: Steve, Andy Kirschman here. Um, can you hear me? Yes, sir. I guess one of the big things with planting green for us, like you said, is the is the dry, and we are we are struggling with. We can go through a winter. Uh, last year was a good example. We went into winter with about five inches of grain at harvest, but by the time we got into the spring, I think we were at about one of the driest springs we could. So even if, even if we would have had something green, a cover. It's, it's hard to know by the spring. You almost can't terminate it fast enough if you have a spring that turns around and looks so very dry. So that's one of the things that I think we're struggling with here is for wintering covers and how, how to terminate them soon enough if we do turn dry real quick.
0: Thank you for that, Andy. That's, that's helpful. Uh, certainly different conditions and uh, unique challenges. Any other questions or, or comments?
1: I think I saw Dale. You were trying to get on. If you can get on, try it again and talk.
0: Yes. Can
3: you hear me? Yep. Yes. Uh, I think the uh, the biggest obstacle to planting green is is mental. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. we have it, it, it is a scary thing to do. We've always been taught that you want absolutely nothing green out there when you plant you need to break the green bridge you need to have bare soil that's warm the the i have people say oh i can't plant green because it's too dry and then they do it and they say well i i had to wait because it was too wet yep. it's it's always a a uh, An issue of, well, which side of your mouth are you talking out of? uh, Is it too dry or is it too wet? I'll I'll mute it back and wait for a response.
1: Well, I'll just say, Dale, I I think you do have a point. Um, I also, uh, I'm going to have to agree with Andy's perspective, too, where there just isn't much of a reserve and the chances to make up for a dry spring are, are statistically a lot less than some of the other areas of the country. So um, I, I do think you have a good point, Dale, that a lot of the, especially I'll just say in the Corn Belt, a lot of it is just a, a perception uh, how it works. Um, so that would be my comment.